I consider myself a late bloomer. I wasn't a BBS kid. Uh, I wasn't up late night uh, hacking on computers or doing anything like that. I had a computer. We played a few video games on it. It was really an appliance to me at that time. In college, though, things changed. I was part of an engineering program. Uh, I'd started off in aerospace engineering. I was terrible at that I was moved over to mechanical engineering decided that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and ended up in computer science. And it was really the internet that opened my eyes. The ability to communicate with people around the world uh, was just this amazing revelation to me. From Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my new friend and colleague, Mike Johnson. Mike and I met at a recent cybersecurity best practice exchange event in Portland, Oregon. We spoke together on a panel about the future of cybersecurity and found out that we actually have a few good friends in common, including Robert Fly, who is our featured guest in episode four of Humans of InfoSec. You may be familiar with Mike as the former CISO of Lyft and co-host of the popular CISO security vendor relationship podcast. He is somewhat of an InfoSec social media celebrity and leads some of our industry's most engaging conversations via his LinkedIn posts. Mike, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me, Carolyn. Happy to be here. We are so pumped to have you here. <laughs> um, so, the, so, you know, you are a well-known person on in our industry. And as we uh, discussed during our call the other day, um, I'd love to talk to you about some things that folks may or may not know about you. Um, and I'd really like to start out by asking you about your LinkedIn headline, which says that you are a CISO on vacation. What does that mean? And what are you up to these days? <laughs> so what it, what it means is there's really kind of the, the two parts to it. There's the CISO part and then there's the on vacation part. And I still consider myself in that CISO mindset, you know, thinking about the large security problems, the strategy of uh, programs in a company, uh, industry-wide challenges, big picture stuff. So that's, that's kind of the, the CISO part. And the on vacation part is you know, I needed to take some time off. Um, I've been, uh, I've been in the industry over 20 years. I've never taken more than two weeks vacation at any point in time. And frankly, all of those times, most folks in security will tell you it's hard to get an actual vacation. So I had this great opportunity to take some time off to chill out to recharge, refresh all, all that fun stuff. Um, and then do some things that I kind of wanted to do, but haven't really had the time to do. So I've got some articles that I'm working on. Uh, I've been able to catch up with some people that I haven't been able to catch up with. Uh, a little bit of travel here and there. Some things that are really hard to do when you have a full-time job. So that, that's the, the on vacation part and also a little bit of what I'm up to lately. Very cool. So. 
I think a lot of our listeners can relate to having never taken more than two weeks vacation at any point in time. That is our listeners based in the United States. Mm. My understanding is that there are actually European countries that require folks to take a minimum of three weeks vacation off. Um, I'm curious to know now that you have chosen this for yourself, you know, um, in a, in a major way so that you can kind of make time for some of the work and some of the other activities that you enjoy doing that kind of doesn't fit into a typical CISO job and lifestyle. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, what's up with, what's up with professionals in our industry not taking vacation? Do you think that that is serving us? I think, I think there's two parts of it. Um, and, and I mentioned very carefully that, you know, it's never taken two weeks off, but also never been a real vacation. I think that if we take the time off and actually unplug and actually disconnect, two weeks is actually a good period of time. But it's really that, are you really getting two weeks away from the day-to-day drudgery? Are you having people still ping you uh, and you're responding? Uh, So I think there's really the two pieces to it. There's the time period. I always talk about breadth and depth. Um, So there's the breadth, uh, there's the how long, uh, and then there's the depth of what is the quality of your vacation? Uh, And some people, you know, one week, but again, getting away and not being bothered and not responding. Uh, There was a company that I spoke with at some point where they actually disconnect uh, the email Email, you know, mobile email clients, they shut down people's accounts while they're gone on vacation. Um, they can't log in. They can't get access to email. They can't be pinged while they're gone. And I think that would be a great practice, setting aside the, the length of time to really make it impossible to get in touch with a person while they're on vacation. Three weeks is great. I think it's great that some countries mandate that. But at the same time, Usually that's an all at the same time, like an entire country essentially shuts down. Uh, And that's not the way that uh, the United States operates. It's great that other countries can do that, but that seems like too big of a deal. The the thing that I would really suggest people concentrate on is the quality of their time off and making sure that, that it truly is time off, no matter how long it is. Cool. Can you share with our listeners some of the benefits? You already told us that you get to do things that you want to do that you didn't, you weren't able to sort of make or find the time for. Can you talk to me about other benefits? Does it change the way that you think? Does it change the ideas that come into your mind? Do you feel different energetically? What, what have the benefits been like for you uh, to take a break from an operational role? One of the big ones is your focus of your ideas isn't your day-to-day job, isn't whatever your biggest problem is today. So you can sit back and look at what are problems that I've had in the past that are not immediate, uh, but if I had if I had the time to sit down and think about it, if this problem were to come up again, I'd have a good answer. Or were a organization in a situation that, again, you don't have the time to think, 
but you've already thought about it, you're going to be in a much better place. So, so that's part of it. Uh, part of it, I think, is, is contribution back to the community. Um, I'm still active on several Slacks, you know, where CISO security leaders discuss their, their current challenges. So part of what I'm able to do there is provide, you know, kind of a completely from the outside view of, you know, hey, well, you know, maybe here's another way of thinking about it. And I find those tremendously valuable for me because I also learn from them. But it's also a great way to give back to people who have given to me over time. Uh, so that that's part of it as well is really that opportunity to help others out with their problems, uh, not only just your way of thinking and, and the the challenges that you've had in the past. Very cool. I, uh, you know, another thing that you and I talked about the other day was that as far as this particular podcast goes, many of our guests have had several years of experience in the industry. And that puts, you know, folks in a certain position. Uh, you are in a position right now where you can give back to people. Uh, and I think that's so cool. I think that's fantastic that you recognize that people have been generous with their time and their information sharing with you and that that's something that you're clearly very passionate about. I'd like to use this as a pivot in our conversation to learn about you at the beginning of your career and even before your career. How would you characterize yourself in your life before you were working? Who was Mike Johnson pre-work, well, pre-CISO? I'll, I'll get to that, but I do want to, I want to respond to the, the point about, you know, folks who have helped me. And I, I really, I genuinely think it's important that, you know, people have helped us get here and we need to make sure that we're providing that back. Uh, you, you'd mentioned Robert earlier and I, I worked for Robert uh, for a period of time back at Salesforce and learned so much from him uh, and have continued to learn from him, uh, you know, at, even post Salesforce, you know, he gave a lot to me. And so I, I really feel a responsibility to give to others. And I think all of us should be giving back and helping others out and, and bringing them along in the industry. Security is hard. Uh, and, you know, we need to help each other out. So I, I wanted to make sure that I responded to that before kind of talking uh, a little bit more about my background. That's um, wonderful. I, I really appreciate that. I, I do agree 100% with your point, and, and I appreciate you making, making a point of emphasizing that. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, in terms of, you know, kind of like pre-work, I would say growing up, uh, you know, I was always one of those kids who tries to figure out how things work. My dad uh, was an electrical engineer. Uh, so I've, I've kind of got some of that engineering experience in my blood. He he worked on telephone switches. He's one of the people who's responsible for the POTS system uh, as it is today. Uh, he had a lot of involvement in that. So I I, I kind of had, and, and he was also uh, a ham, so an amateur radio enthusiast. So we had all sorts of stuff just kind of sitting around the house that I would just play with you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. You're taking things apart and mostly being able to put them back together. I remember one time where I was actually experimenting with electricity 
because when you're a kid, you don't know how dangerous things are. I basically destroyed several of the the sockets uh, in my mom's house, blew out a circuit breaker. <laughs> um, she was not real happy about that. Um, and and to this day, so so the experiment was: can you cook, can you cook a hot dog with electricity? And it was, oh, yes, yeah. Th- so th- this was, this was my grand experiment. This seemed like a really good idea. Fantastic. That's fantastic. And, and it was, you know, what is the better mechanism? You know, is it uh, stick two forks in a hot dog? Um, so you get some separation between the tines that are in the hot dog. And does that get more electricity going through the hot dog? Or is it knives, which have more surface area over a smaller period of space? And both of them actually cook a hot dog, by the way. So if you're really desperate for a hot dog, uh, it, it does oh, work. <laughs> um, but the, the downside was one of the knives, basically, um, there was some sort of electrochemical reaction. And one of them has turned black. Um, I, I basically electroplated hmm. the, the knife. And my mom has kept that knife. <laughs> My mom still has that knife and still gives me crap about that. But it was, it, it was really exemplary of the kinds of things that, you know, as a kid, you're, you're just playing around with. You know, that, that sense of uh, interest, that sense of wanting to know how things work was really the early part was kind of probably what led, to, led me to where I am today and certainly as, as part of, my, uh, of who I am now. But in terms of computers and computer security, I, I consider myself a late bloomer. I wasn't a BBS kid. Uh, I wasn't up late night uh, hacking on computers or doing anything like that. I had a computer. We played a few video games on it. It was really an appliance to me at that time. In college, though, things changed. And I went to, I was part of an engineering program. Uh, I'd started off in aerospace engineering. I was terrible at, at that. I moved over to mechanical engineering and decided that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life um, and ended up in computer science. And it was really the internet that opened my eyes. The ability to communicate with people around the world uh, was just this amazing revelation to me. And that was what I really got. That was when I really got into computers. And that was. 93, 92, 93 timeframe. That was what got me into computers. And then my senior networks project class, uh, I, I will never forget sitting down, uh, and this is a bunch of seniors in a computer science class, in a computer science uh, school. And the, the teacher asks, okay, who here knows TCPIP? And this was 95, I think. Who knows TCPIP? No hands went up. There was like 40 people in the room. And the look on the professor's face was one of just shock. So he thought we should have known TCPIP by then. So he sits about, he sits down, spends two weeks, I think it was, teaching us all TCPIP. And I was fascinated. Um, I, it was now understanding how all this communication that I've been having so much fun with understanding how that works. Uh, and that was what got me into networking, that class and that professor. I ended up 
uh, taking a second semester class from him. I ended up working as a teaching assistant. And as I was working in the projects class, as, as I was teaching assistant, I was assistant administrator for a small lab, 10, 15, maybe 20 systems connected directly to the internet. Because back in the day, uh, universities, and, and still some to this day, every computer is directly connected to the internet for better or for worse. And that was really my uh, crash course on security was, oh crap, these things are directly connected to the internet. There are people out there who are screwing around and just trying to essentially take use of resources. It was a common thing to find another computer and install a game server on it. That was the kind of thing that we had to deal with back then. And so that was my crash course into security. And that then turned into professional career from there. So that, that's kind of my, my, how I got here, uh, pre-work information. Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I have one follow-up question, which is why not electrical engineering? Um, I th I, so that's a good question. And I, I don't really, I don't know that I really decided against it. I, if I look back and I, I had friends who were in computer engineering, which was the like designing chips kind of aspects of computers that was closer to electrical engineering. So it was kind of somewhere in between. And really, I think it was, there was just a lot of math involved um, a lot of calculus and I was just done with calculus and differential equations I took two and a half years of calculus in college and I, I think I was done and so I didn't want to I didn't want to go back and apply all of that math and computer science now that I'm thinking about this computer science had more of a creativity side to it than electrical engineering in mm. general in electrical engineering there's one way of doing things um, because it's down to physics. You have to respect the laws of physics. You can't change them. But computer science has an outlet of creativity. You're making these things that are virtual um, that don't have to respect the laws of physics when you're writing in C. You know, it's, you're making things up. Uh, and so I think that's why the electrical engineering side didn't appeal to me as much. I didn't feel like I had, an, I had a, quite as good an outlet for creativity there. That is so cool. I've never really thought about it that way before. Um, I, I hadn't either. <laughs> that's neat. That's neat. I, uh, what a, what a cool revelation. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I, uh, I do remember the part about EE having so much math. <laughs> yes. Um, Mike, there's something that we talked about on the panel a couple of weeks ago uh, that evening in uh, Portland. And what a neat location, side note. Oh, I mean, great. I don't even really like know where we were. We were like in a treasury. There was like this huge physical vault. I mean, it almost looked like out of a movie. I, I actually don't really get where we were i knew we went like underground and then there was a cool vault <laughs> yeah it, it was an old bank building i think they said it was like the first bank in portland uh, but mm. the the cool thing is 
uh, one of those vaults is still in use today. And they'll, they'll do the, the closing ceremony um, where you can watch as they, you know, truck the, the cash in and then close the vault and, and, and lock it up. Uh, uh, Rich, one of the, one of our co-panelists, you know, witnessed it and I think even grabbed some video of it, but they, they make a big to do of it. It's, that was a genuine vault that is still in use today. And it was amazing to be able to see that. Awesome. Yeah. It's very oceans 11. Mike, the other day I noticed that you had posted something on LinkedIn about shadow IT uh, and how, in fact, this concept of shadow IT has actually gotten to a point where shadow IT just straight up is IT. Um, and I think that, you know, I feel like that's somewhat connected to this phenomenon that we're discussing with regards to, you know, CISOs having some security responsibility for both production as well as corporate or IT, however you want to say it. Uh, and it's just really interesting that the industry's gotten here. You know, I can remember 10 years ago, uh, security professionals being sort of really concerned about the move to the cloud, you know, and here we are, and it really is in so many cases, the norm. Um, so, so what are your, what are your thoughts on that? What is, what is it like when you are talking with folks and this, this concept of shadow IT keeps coming up? I, I think, so part of this is, you know, part of the fact that I worked at Salesforce, you know, a cloud company as the cloud was coming into, into, common parlance. Uh, so I'm, I'm somewhat influenced by that. But the, the reality is when you've got people who need to get things done, they've got um, the part of the business that needs to operate. Generally, they're going to do what's in, what they think is in the best interest of the business, which is continue to operate the business. And that sometimes means going and setting up a new cloud service. Uh, I'm not saying security professionals shouldn't be worried about that, but calling it shadow IT, I think is the wrong way to look at it. I, I really do think this is information technology in the modern world, is a group of a company going and being able to purchase five, 10 seats of a service in order to make them more productive versus the past where an IT organization would say, all right, well, give us your needs. We'll figure out where it fits in our priorities. Uh, we'll find the best solution for the broadest number of people. We'll see what all the use cases are. We'll evaluate three different companies and maybe in a year you'll have what you need. What I really think the, the shadow IT thing has taught us is People will find a way, companies will find a way. We need to embrace that rather than kind of looking at it, you know, down our noses and, and calling it shadow IT. So think of it more of how do you enable that from a security perspective? How do you support the fact that teams are going to go out and do things that they need to do to get things done? How can you still function in that world and live in that world where you can help them out and help them understand what their security responsibilities are, that they're going to a let you know that that, that it's going on, uh, and b seek out some guidance. And maybe they've got two vendors, maybe they've got three vendors, 
and you can give them some input from a security perspective, this is the best of the three. And then, you know, again, it's helping them out and they'll appreciate that. And the next time they need to go and purchase a service, they're gonna to come to you. So it's really rather than keep keeping calling it shadow IT and getting all bent out of shape as it continues, embrace it, make it part of the functioning of a business. And that way you can actually secure it versus if it does stay underground, if you continue to basically fight against it, it will stay underground and still happen. So that's really what I'm trying to get across is stop calling it shadow IT and fighting against it. Call it just, this is our modern world, embrace it, and then you actually have a chance of, of helping to make it secure. I think that's excellent advice. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your perspective on that with our listeners. You know, it reminds me of uh, the original Jurassic Park movie, like Life Finds a Way, you know, and they were trying to figure out, like, how is it that these dinosaurs are reproducing? They're all female. Uh, and it's like, well, you know what? Reality is that uh, they have figured out a way how to. Uh, and instead of sort of saying, like, no, that doesn't exist, no, that's not happening, uh, really in everyone's best interest to, to recognize, yeah, it is happening. You know, how can we operate in the real world? Exactly. I didn't know Jurassic Park was going to come up in this conversation. Um, you never know where a conversation might <laughs> go. Yeah, that's what I love about these kinds of things. Uh, Mike, I've got another different question for you. I'm curious to know about your experiences at Salesforce and Lyft, um, and particularly the part about Salesforce is a SaaS platform for businesses, Lyft, you know, one might have looked at this at least, is it's a consumer-facing product. Um, how does being a CISO for companies with those different, you could say, like, customers, um, how does that differ? You know, does, is, is it different? It surprised me how different it was. Uh, hmm. What really the, the key thing is um, who, who are you trying to satisfy from a security perspective. At Salesforce, at a B2B organization, it's your customers that come first and their requirements around security. If you don't meet their requirements around security, they're going somewhere else. Uh, and they're going to take a contract with them that could be worth millions, tens of millions. Yeah, from what I've heard, there's a $100 million contract at at Lyft and sorry, at Salesforce. And there might be multiple $100 million contracts there. If you look at AWS, um, they certainly have multiple $100 million contracts. I think the US government may have given them a billion dollar contract. If you can't satisfy those security requirements, those customers go away and they go somewhere else. They go to your competition and that become, that snowballs. So a lot of it is on the B2B side, that's who you're trying to satisfy. In the B2C space, your customers are of smaller unit. And it's not, I'm, I don't mean to say that they're, they're less important. Um, they just, they individually contribute less to the bottom line. Um, I still use Lyft. I'm a happy customer of Lyft. Maybe I do 20 or $30 a month. Um, 
you know, that's a few hundred dollars a year. Um, if I go somewhere else, Lyft isn't going to be harmed. So when you're in a B2C space, you're, you've got to satisfy legal requirements and regulators, of course. Um, but a lot of it is you're trying to satisfy this broad image. Um, your reputation matters a lot. You're not trying to satisfy the individual requirements of a single customer. You're trying to satisfy the requirements of this broad um, amorphous set of customers that have, you know, that have really all they have in common is that they use your service. So you're really trying to figure out, well, what are the requirements that we need to be satisfying here? Uh, it's both, um, it's both more difficult and simpler in some ways. You know, you can sit back and you can kind of write the rules. Um, you can figure out what's most important. Maybe you're just using a framework and working through the framework, but at the same time, the compliance compliance drives spend for a lot of companies uh, because then you're able to say, here's how security contributes to a bottom line budget and so on and so forth. In the B2C space, you don't have that direct coupling to signing deals. You have to figure out what makes sense from a security perspective, from a budgetary perspective. So that was you know, really what I found the difference was how you prioritize and how you manage your money is very different in the B2B space versus the B2C space. Hmm. Cool. That's fascinating. Um, and I think that hearing you say that, I think for some of our listeners may provide some insight in terms of what they may be able to expect culturally at an organization, depending on whether it's security for, you know, B2B, B2C. Um, of course, there are many different types of security jobs, uh, but thank you so much for sharing your perspective on that. Mike, as sort of a couple of wrap-up questions, I've been debating with myself to ask you about your cats. <laughs> or if I should ask you about what's next for you. And so I think I'm going to ask you about both. What are your cat's names and what are their personalities like? <laughs> so we have uh, two Maine Coon cats uh, that are about a oh, year old now. Awesome. They're, oh, awesome. They are amazing. Uh, they're still kittens uh, from all respects. Uh, they're big cats. Uh, the smaller of the two is 14 pounds. The bigger one is 15 pounds. And that's just size. Uh, they've got these big, amazing bushy tails, uh, huge ears, big paws. But their, their personalities, they're just, they're both curious as any cat would be. But what's, like, what's always amazing to me is when we come home of a night, they come to the door to greet us. Um, they're like, you know, hey, human, welcome home, which is this great experience. Um, they love being picked up and held and they're playful. And uh, one of them, uh, we have this uh, ice maker that makes uh, really small cubes of ice. And she got to the point where one of them fell on the floor one day and she chased it around. She was as happy as she could be. 
So now whenever we go and get ice, we have to give her a piece so she oh can go gosh, chase so it around. And she'll come from the other side of the house. She hears the door open to the ice maker and she comes tearing in uh, to get her piece of ice. So I, I, we love them uh, tremendously. They're so much fun. Um, they're so soft, can be a little annoying sometimes, but hey, that's cats. But the reality is we love them. They're so precious to us. Uh, they both have their own personalities uh, and they're, they're just so much fun to have around. That's wonderful. I can hear the joy in your voice and, and it's so <laughs> neat to have a little sort of like peek into your life and and a, and a little piece of what fills you up you know yes. i think that's that's so so wonderful mike what's next for you what are you up to over this next what's the next five to ten years look like for you mike just a little small question to end the podcast <laughs> so where i've landed is i have enjoyed i enjoyed the CISO role uh, I enjoyed doing it at Lyft. It was really a challenge, a different set of problems to solve, both from an organizational perspective, from a uh, personnel and people perspective, from a technology perspective, from a risk perspective. It was all these, you know, I got exposures and responsibility far beyond what I've had in the past in security. I found that really interesting and really a stretch. I learned a lot. I made mistakes. I'm, I made some great decisions. Uh, I did some good uh, and I want to do that again. So what I can say is probably the next five years um, is another CISO role. Don't know where cool. yet. Um, I'm, you know, keeping my eyes out. I've got a few conversations going on here and there, but it's going to be something interesting. It's going to be something that I personally, uh, want to do. Um, so that's probably the next five years. What I don't know is kind of beyond that role. I don't think that, uh, in the modern day and age setting aside security, but in technology, people don't tend to stay at, uh, one job for too terribly long. I, I view my time at Salesforce nine years there as an anomaly. Um, that's not where we are today. So I don't know that my next 10 years uh, is in a CISO role. I might go over to the product side of security, you know, figuring out, you know, solutions to provide to people that might be joining an existing company that might be starting something up. I don't know. 10 years is a long way to, is a long time to look out, but the, the five years is, is more in focus for me. That's awesome. Well, folks, you heard it here. Mike Johnson looking for his next CISO opportunity. <laughs> Everyone grab him while you can. But, but seriously, Mike, thank you so, so much for spending this time with me today. Um, it has been a pleasure. And thank you on behalf of our listeners for sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Caroline. I, um, I've, I've been a fan of yours for quite some time. Uh, it was great meeting you up in Portland. And it was wonderful to just sit down and have a conversation with you both today and, and kind of as the, uh, the, the pre-show when we were, we were going through it. Th this podcast and your perspective on it, looking at the human side of, of information security, there's not many people out there doing it. So 
thank you for the podcast, uh, you know, for doing what you're doing, but thank you for having me on the show and kind of giving me the opportunity to talk about security in a different way than I usually do. So thank you for having me. It was a wonderful experience. You're very welcome. I appreciate your kind words. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen test as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.